if the U.S. government, the media, the legal system, and the church can't keep democracy alive. It's time for a state sale, a podcast on American democracy, because America is better than this. Thanks for joining us today, everyone. I'm Lori Lattimore-Volkman. And I'm Brad Rayleigh. Well, we have a packed show for you today. Everything from a few comments about John Bolton's book that has Trump concerned and Democrats ranging from angry that he wouldn't testify to, hmm, let's see what's in there. Then a lengthy discussion about last week's victory in the Supreme Court for gay rights in the workplace. And finally, more conversation about the nation's overwhelming acceptance of the Black Lives Matter movement and the need to fix police departments across the country. So grab some lemonade, maybe add a little vodka, and enjoy. The Washington Post read on Bolton's book. Uh, yes. And has a, a readout on it. And of course, I'm furious at Bolton, as I think most, most people are, because he certainly could have stood up in front of Congress and said this stuff uh, and decided instead to make money. So I hate that. But in reading that, that takedown, when he's talking about people like Pompeo just being absolutely stunned by I think that things that Trump says on you know international calls and just being you know that strikes me as well a it says what a coward he is you know to to still be there and still be doing this but it also speaks to the fact of how awful Trump is if somebody like Mike Pompeo is is bothered at all you know because you don't see any of that from the public yeah. Well, that's you. been one of my biggest gripes. To have White House staffers who'll go whisper to the press and leak things to the press about how awful Trump is, or I can't believe he's going to do this, and then still stay there or not put their name behind their opinion on that. Like, I'm so done with people in the background wanting to leak their angst over Trump, right. but not being willing to stand up take him down, go on the record. And I put John Bolton in that category too. Jim Mattis, uh, you know, at least finally came out and said something. I mean, Mattis watched uh, Trump, you know, blunder his way out of the Iran deal, cozy up to Putin, Erdogan, almost get us into a, in a war in with Iran. For whatever reason, it seemed like the one kind of straw was him using the military or threatening to use the military uh, in a domestic role and and that is a problem obviously but you are curious why you know why those other things didn't cause him to be hey what about this and its effect on america too in you know our national security so there have been a lot of faustian deals <laughs> yeah that's true in the last that's three true. and a half years i mean from day one is that the people like bolton or mattis or kelly or these were people that, that Trump actually, you know, seemed to like and wanted and then turn on them when, once, once any, and they disagree. And, you know, people often mistake this about Trump. They say he demands loyalty and I keep saying, no, he demands fealty. He uh, loyalty is a two way street. Trump does not have any loyalty for anybody other than himself. And so if somebody disagrees with him, they are dead to him and he turns on them. Um, and now you look at every Republican who's an elected official. And I'm I'm talking to you, Lindsey Graham, if you're listening to this podcast. Um, <laughs> I'll be sure to send him a recording. <laughs> hey, um, Lindsey, you know, my I mean, latest you email to, to you. know. 
I mean, if you're if you're Lindsey Graham or any of these other sycophants that are in there, you have to know that you are just a matter of an inconvenient story or, um, you know, whatever. To all of a sudden he hates you and turns his mob against you, and uh, I mean, it's 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 ridiculous. And so for them to see other it's happened to other people and still say silent is is more proof of their cowardice. Lindsey Graham will be the one guy to survive because he's so slippery and we're seeing this as soon as he acts a little bit tough and trump probably gets angry with him he goes back 180 and and does his total kiss up kind of thing like hey why don't i investigate all of the you know obama administration officials (laughs) about you know uh, about the fbi investigation like just Yes, it's called Obamagate, right? And remember that? What, what, <laughs> we had to make did that we had to go? figure out what it was as soon as you said right. it. Right. We, we couldn't know. He said, of course, it's clear everybody knows this. No one could figure out what it was because it wasn't there. And and now here we are, you know, several weeks later and and he, he he stopped talking about it because he's like now he's focused on trying to convince everybody he can walk and chew gum at the I same know. time. I texted my brother-in-law who's a scientist and, and I, and I said, you know, of all the dumb things he said, and there's a whole litany of dumb things he said, including of course, that, that perhaps, uh, you know, disinfectants could be applied inside the body to clean out the lungs. That, that was pretty fucking dumb. But, but when he said that, that the problem with the uptick in cases was that we were testing my mind almost just sort of exploded. I was like, I, well, I don't understand how you could stand there and not just sort of stand up and say, you're a moron. That, that's, I mean, yes, it, obviously it does represent an uptick in cases, but that's not why people are in the hospital. He's actually revealed this viewpoint for a long time now, three yeah, weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, I don't know why we do the tests. All the tests are going to do is show that there are cases like right nobody's blaming him that the virus came into this world right we're just blaming him for the response and so how do you fix that well you get your together and you do things about it all he can do is keep whining that it's going up whining that he doesn't want to wear a mask and even when they've proved that if even only half the country wore masks that would decrease the spread of cases by something like 80%, they think. Yeah, it's it's huge. So all you have to do is just say, wear a mask. We can open businesses, but wear a mask. Governors, make sure that it's okay for local businesses to require wearing a mask, unlike stupid Texas governor. In his narcissistic mind, it makes him look weak because it's all about him and not about life and not about protection and not about care. And it's so consistent with what we've seen for three and a half years. So consistent. Yes, that's exactly (laughs) correct. Be more kind of unraveling than I think, you know, things that worked two years ago are not working as well. You know, and then, (laughs) and then you have him and Mike Pence going out and saying that we've conquered the virus and it's over. And, you know, there is in a different timeline in a different or not in a different context, in a different topic. Sorry, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, 
there are some of these things that you can do that to. You can actually just sort of will it away and just sort of say, we're not going to, you know, we're, ju we're just not going to talk about Stormy Daniels. We're not going to talk about payoffs. We're not going to talk about Ukraine. That's, that's gone. Um, the virus, however, is not going to let that happen. And as we're seeing the uptick in your state, the uptick in Arizona, Florida is going through the ceiling. That clearly is not getting better. Yeah, well, in fact, his Klan rally this past weekend, as you like to call it, is total proof of that. I mean, in spite of all the push the whole week that he's still having this rally, that he, you know, coronavirus, public health be damned, we're going to be indoors, 19,000 people, we've got the overflow space because we've sold 30,000 tickets, and when it comes down to it, 6,000 people are there. And, well, some of that was probably thanks to the TikTok crowd who bought tickets and never wanted to show up. Thank you to the new Antifa. But probably a good part of it is even his followers going, yeah, I, if you're going to make me sign a waiver and I'm going to be indoors, and I've actually seen a few reports that indoors, close to people, no mask is not a great idea. I think I'm going to sit this one out. And even inside the arena, when there's clearly enough seats to come down front, there were a few people that chose to sit up in the rafters by themselves. <laughs> I mean, I, I love that shot of the person up there in the rafters by himself with the Make America Great Again sign. Like, yeah, even they aren't buying it. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you. But let's, uh, let's turn and talk about kind of the big news this week. Some good news for once, <laughs> which is the Bostock case where the Supreme Court ruled six to three in favor of the Civil Rights Act, including sexual orientation in its anti-discrimination law. What, uh, what do you think, Brad? How, how, how did we get so lucky on this one? This anti-gay thing that, you know, worked like clockwork for Karl Rove and, and George Bush in 2004. I mean, that got the evangelicals out to vote in numbers that were enough to no, tip. Otherwise, no John Kerry, I think, wins Ohio, I think. Uh, I mean, it, it, it was it was a close thing. And he ran a pretty good campaign. And the anti-gay vote, um, a huge ground shift. And then since that time, since 2004 and now, if you look at the polling data on support for, for, uh, for gay rights, it's just an upward trajectory in, in favor. And it's so obvious why that is. The number of LGBTQ people is around 16 million. Every single person probably can can think of someone in their circle, whether it's a friend or a family member, who is likely LGBTQ. The more politicians who can't deny that their child is gay or their sibling is gay or a large portion of their constituency is gay, keeps them from being able to really get on that stump speech the way they used to be able to. One of the things about, I was thinking to a certain degree, this is a product of Republican miscalculation on this issue. And I think if we, if we were keep using the timeline thing, but you know, it had, had Romney's kind of 
version of conservatism won out in 2012. Much more economic focused kind of conservatism was was winning out and that you actually had people looking at the aftermath of the 2012 election and, and actually following the autopsy report and saying, hey, we really need to reach out to people of color. We need to really stop this culture war stuff because we're losing on that battleground. We might be in a different situation, but what you really see with the ruling on Monday, um, what a gigantic miscalculation this has been for Republicans who still are clinging to this. I mean, the polling data has gone up primarily, like you said, because people actually do usually know somebody who is LGBTQ and they have learned to maybe not be afraid. But we also have just simply the fact of gay marriage being the law of the land and the sky didn't fall. Right. Um, you know, I mean, actually society actually functioned perfectly well in those aspects of, of life. We're even seeing this reflected in the church Aside from some of the far-right fundamentalist denominations, many of the mainline Christian denominations are opening their doors and embracing their gay members and saying publicly, we love you, we accept you, Jesus accepts you. It's much more about love and acceptance than it is about exclusion and condemnation. And that makes it even harder for the Republican Party to make it a party rallying cry because their constituents, their churches, their families, their friends are saying, you're crazy. Like you said, it doesn't work anymore because nobody actually believes it. And I have to say that that rule change last Friday that had both of us um, really freaking out. out. <laughs> yes. And actually, I mean, I follow I follow several, um, you know, trans people on on Facebook and they they were in tears last Friday and then they were in tears on Monday after the ruling because of the what a what a great relief it was this has to, this is back to those people that you and I were talking about that were I'm not quite willing to call them that evangelical middle that that Ron Sider believes exists but they are people who do believe in some kind of decency and I have to think that they're looking at that kind of cruelty to somehow be able to say that because someone is a trans male or is non-binary and they are in a traffic accident and somehow that a paramedic or a, or a um, EMT would look at them and say, well, I don't agree with their lifestyle, so I'm not going to help them and allow that person to actually die, which we know has happened. We know that's absolutely happened. We know that trans people are at huge risk as, as a part of the homeless population, that they're, they're at risk on the streets, like, like, especially trans people of color. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible situation. And, and so you see people quite conservative socially are not embracing of LGBTQ, but I can't imagine them inflicting harm physically on anybody like that just because of their disagreement they might shake their head and say i'll pray for you and i wish you would change and everything else but to deny them life-saving care is a part of that cruelty that when trump comes out as a policy on friday and says we're okay with all of that and we actually want you under the guise of religious freedom to say you can deny somebody a prescription or deny somebody a life-saving treatment or kick them out of a property and put them on the street or kick them out of a homeless shelter because of their of their orientation or their identity. I have to think that some of the people I know who call themselves Christians and go to church on a weekly basis would find that horrific.
Yeah, <laughs> agreed. But funny you should mention religious freedom because the ruling on Monday in the Bostock case was a landmark win for gay rights, no doubt. And it's a big deal that it wasn't just five to four with the more moderate John Roberts joining the four liberals on the court, but also conservative justice Neil Gorsuch. I mean, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really big deal because Gorsuch is known for his belief in textualism, which is reading the law according to the actual words and their literal meaning and not necessarily looking beyond the text to the intended meaning, to the situation surrounding the law when it was written, etc. And so to Gorsuch, the textual meaning of Title VII in the Civil Rights Act that says there can be no workplace discrimination because of sex also includes a person's sexual orientation. And that was a, that's a very big distinction. And he argues in the outset of his majority opinion that if you chose not to hire someone because they were transgender, you were taking sex into consideration because you, you wouldn't do that for somebody who wasn't. So in his mind, it, it was discrimination and therefore that would be against the Civil Rights Act. So it's very important and a potentially sweeping opinion that will certainly put Trump's latest executive order in jeopardy. Thank goodness. But there is another decision coming that specifically addresses the question of religious freedom and whether it might be exempt from anti-discrimination laws for sexual orientation that will really test Gorsuch and and Roberts and all of the conservatives. Is by the way, has that been argued in court? And we're waiting yeah, to hear yeah. that the rules. It, yes. oh, okay. Now, partly we have to watch because I'm sure you read uh, Washington Post had a couple of articles on on the on the ruling, and one of them was about um, you know the anti-gay movement and the and the far right um, completely taking. I mean, they, they're like ready to hang Gorsuch from the, yeah. you know, and, and this, this pushes John Roberts to their, uh, he must be a liberal, uh, after all kind of, uh, stance. Be interesting. John Roberts, of course, helped make sure the defense of marriage act passed. So we have same sex marriage allowed as one headline said, he's been waiting five years to undermine gay rights. So this might be his chance. <laughs> Gorsuch was such a surprise in this last ruling that I think this other case is going to be far more crucial for really seeing whether our Supreme Court is going to side with their personal and political convictions or if they are going to really read the law and consider the Constitution when deciding cases. Because that case, Fulton versus the city of Philadelphia, considers whether religious organizations that contract with the city to help place foster children in homes have a First Amendment right based on their religious freedom to discriminate against same-sex couples. So it's going to be very interesting how Gorsuch views the religious freedom clause in the First Amendment that says the government can't establish a state religion or prevent the free exercise. So if a religious agency wanting to place foster children believes homosexuality and transgender are against God's law, do they have a constitutional right that they can ignore any laws against discrimination? I'll be interested in breaking that one down and, you know, having a, a legal scholar far more intelligent than I on, the, on that issue to, to talk about it. But anyway, <laughs> my whole point is that while this case is fantastic for gay rights and transgender rights, 
the fight definitely is not going to be over. One of the things to watch for, of course, I'm sure you're thinking this too, is that Gorsuch may want to shore up at least, you know, say, hey, I'm still one of you people. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm hoping, I, I would like to think that Supreme Court justices don't think in those kind of terms, but. I do think that sometimes whatever is going on in the country, and especially in this time when it's so divisive and the president is just in everything, he can't keep himself out of any branch of government, that they probably really want to establish an independence and prove that they're independent. And so there could be some influence that way that I want to make sure I, I prove that I am looking at the law. I'm considering this based on the Constitution, based on precedent, based on jurisprudence, and not based on politics and and what the president wants. And that because I was a conservative appointed by a Republican, I have to side with these these particular conservative issues. Instead, I need to side with the law and the Constitution. That's my hope. <laughs> I pray, hope and pray that that some of those justices are are thinking that and trying to do that and not just trying to assert a particular political agenda like the president. Uh, by the way, on that point of how he decided it, this is something I think you probably have read more than I have because I realized I am behind on this whole textualism argument uh, versus original intent, which it seemed to me that for so many, I mean, because I've sort of ignored some of the the legal arguments from the right because they've seemed so disingenuous. So we have this original intent where the whole argument is this is what were they actually thinking in, in 1780s. Uh, now there, this this textualism is saying just what the words themselves say. It doesn't matter what the intent of the the legislator who wrote it or whatever uh, little pill is slipped into the bill. What the text says is what the text means. There's always been this group, and this is what you've heard the conservatives whining about over the last however many elections. And when it comes to appointing justices, they right. don't want somebody who's going to go outside. The law. Judicial activism. Exactly. They don't want activist judges. Exactly. And so Gorsuch would be seen as the opposite of that. Somebody who's going to be very strict to the to the law, as are almost all conservatives, because then that allows you to not broaden freedom, (laughs) basically, (laughs) and broaden constitutional rights. Did you read Kavanaugh's dissent? Notwithstanding my concern about the court's transgression of the Constitution's separation of powers, It is appropriate to acknowledge the important victory achieved today by gay and lesbian Americans. Millions of gay and lesbian Americans have worked hard for many decades to achieve equal treatment in fact and in law. They have exhibited extraordinary vision, tenacity, and grit, battling often steep odds in the legislative and judicial arenas, not to mention in their daily lives. They have advanced powerful policy arguments and can take pride in today's result. It's interesting (laughs) <laughs> that Kavanaugh would write that in his dissent. Maybe he he wanted to make sure he didn't come across as being anti-gay and wanted to try to make it clear that he was just reading the words. But nevertheless, that kind of that kind of language in a dissent is also sometimes as important as language in a majority opinion for future decisions. 
Yes. I mean, that's, that's where I have to think uh, that's what my friend Joe was saying on Facebook. He said, you know, I'm sure that the, 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 the religious right are furious at Gorsuch, but they can't be terribly happy that their boy Kavanaugh, <laughs> that they were willing to, you know, is saying well, such nice things about gay rights and in, in, in his dissent. What's really interesting about the opinion, the majority opinion from Gorsuch, is that he does use his textualist framework to come up with a very different view than Kavanaugh and Thomas and Alito come up with in their dissenting opinion. There's actually a great explanation of textualism by and and its application in this case, in the Bostock case, and particularly how the different conservatives viewed it. From Andrew Koppelman, who's a law professor, particularly on gay rights, he sort of breaks down the, the two different versions coming from the different conservatives. And he points out that this textualist approach, when you can't know everything, you look to the plain meaning of the words rather than the intention. But Koppelman points out that where the conservatives diverged in their application of this textualist approach was really in defining what it, what plain meaning means. Justice Alito had been the one to say the law doesn't say sex orientation, it just says sex, so that can only mean gender, right? But as Koppelman points out, when you look at the language from the Civil Rights Act, it clearly is talking about pretty expansive anti-discrimination. I mean, just because they didn't say sexual orientation, they were they were including so many things. So the meaning of the law was to ban discrimination. Therefore, it would certainly mean in today's world discrimination against hiring or firing someone because of their sexual orientation. It definitely breaks down how Gorsuch and Roberts viewed plain meaning in that regard. They they looked at the meaning of the of the law of the Civil Rights Act versus looking at just the only words in there. If it says sex, it can't be sexual orientation. Um, if it says sex and it doesn't say sexual orientation but you look at the meaning of the law and the meaning of the law is anti-discrimination, then of course it would include discrimination against people for their sexual orientation. It'll be something I'm sure Ralph Reed and the other uh, homophobes and the, uh, and the religious right are going to be, uh, Tony Perkins is probably flagellating himself right now as it speaks for not having done enough. You'll edit that out. But, <laughs> I will um, not. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, one of the things, and you and, and we've talked about this in terms of enthusiasm for voting. I mean, that in 2004, the threat of gay rights enough to get people out to the polls uh, more than the left's hatred of the Iraq war. Um, and just barely, just yeah. barely. Um, and since then, of course, that, that polling has shifted and everything else, but we're still, and this is something we'll be talking about all the way through the fall. It's all about enthusiasm. If the Democratic base turns out, if the people who are really care about this, the Democrats are going to be fine. And they would have been fine in 2016 if they had turned out in the numbers that they should have. But this has to be deep concern for the religious right people and certainly for Trump people in, in there because they know that, that they're having a little bit of struggle with that evangelical white vote. 
And if those people lose enthusiasm, if they look at this ruling, if they hear about what Kavanaugh said, it's one of the likely things, of course, will not be that they will turn around and vote for Joe Biden, but that they will say there's no point in voting for these people because they're not, none of them are any good. Um, none of them will do what they say they're going to do, which is, you know, that's that's the fear they've always had is holding that group together has always been um, a bit of a, a juggling thing to try to prove to them that after all those years of Reagan and all the people they thought were on their side, not getting any of the things that they thought they were going to get. Big part of why Trump was able to win in 2016 and to win that vote is that he was telling them, I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to get you what you want. And again, I'm not saying this will happen. One of the things I know is that soulless vampires like Tony Perkins and, and Ralph Reed are good at, I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll do another Faustian bargain. They'll do anything they can to get that vote out. But if people lose that enthusiasm on the religious right, and you're right, if the main focus has been, if we get the right people in office, we'll get the judges, the judges will give us the, the world that we want to see reflected back. It'll be a, a world without abortion, without gay people, and all that kind of stuff. And if they if they actually see this and go, mm, I'm not getting what I want, their likely decision will be to say, I'm just going to stay home. I don't know. I mean, I have to disagree. I think it will probably embolden them more. I think a decision like this will actually freak them out because they definitely won't think that they're going to get the judges they want from a Democrat. In truth, Trump can argue, I, I got you two conservative justices. You know, I don't know why Gorsuch went rogue. I don't know why he actually decided to read the Constitution and follow it. Damn him. Yeah. But yeah. Ralph Reed and Tony Perkins and Franklin Graham, they will make them even more afraid that if you don't get out the vote, then when Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies, we'll get another liberal. And what we need is we've got to have another conservative in there. And so... You know, you, you have to vote for Trump. I absolutely get that. That's going to be their pitch. What the only thing I'm saying, I I completely agree. They're going to double down. They're going to actually double down on the fear. Now the abortion thing is still a a wild card in a way, because I argued in 2016, because I had read a poll somewhere. I saw diminishing support among especially younger people on abortion. And I thought it's going the way of gay rights. And I was clearly wrong because that still is that red button that they're able to push to get people out to the polls. And that's still there. And that's still an issue. Don't get me wrong. But we do see that one of those has been gay rights. And that, I mean, I just looked at the polling today. I mean, it's it's like 74, 73% of Americans total are in support of gay rights and think that, you know, that people should not be fired for simply being gay. I mean, that that's, those are, those are monster numbers. There are a lot of people in this country who are gay and, and are not shunned. I mean, we, they are our friends and they are our family members and our true loved ones. For the most part, most of the country has accepted this. It's really only this very small faction, but I think when it comes to the to the whole argument of of these different issues and the justices, this this case and Kavanaugh's comments are not going to make anybody who who does follow this this anti-gay anti-abortion line of thinking. It's not going to make them think, oh well, my vote won't matter, or we can't do anything. I'm not going to worry about it. I think it will make them double down. It will make them more afraid for something else. I think you were kind of right in 2016. Probably where you were wrong is that those people didn't vote. 
I think that generation that is so adamantly opposed to abortion is getting older and sm and smaller. They're just very vocal, or they've got powerful leaders in those Franklin right. Grahams and, and right. Ralph Reeds. And so it seems to be fairly energized, but I have to think it is shrinking. By the way, one of the other things that I was thinking about in terms of related to this, when the support for gay marriage started to shift, polling for and the acceptance of gay marriage, which I was reading the other day that actually that gay rights activists used to not even talk about gay marriage because they didn't think that was even achievable. They were actually more interested in what happened on Monday to have that, the just, just yeah, the discrimination. Right. Right. And so I think for a lot of people, when, when all of a sudden gay marriage was, was, was now you were starting to see acceptance in, in places that you'd never seen it before, they were just stunned and it just, it just happened. You're seeing the same thing with Black Lives Matter. I mean, in 2016, or that when Black Lives Matter uh, started, which was really after that was after Ferguson, wasn't it? I saw another poll on that that, you know, like in 2016, support, public support for Black Lives Matter was underwater. I mean, that 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 most Americans were didn't like that movement, thought it was radical, scared of it, whatever, because of you know entrenched racism and everything else. But you turn around, and here we have after one of the more um, dramatic periods of, of protest. I, I mean, I didn't study this, but I, I saw somebody who studies social protesting and saying that we've never seen anything like this, not these sustained protests to say nothing if a, in the middle of a goddamn pandemic that people are out there willing to risk their lives to fight for this. Um, but then you see, cause I, I could see that happening, just the, the rage on the street, everything else. But then you would, in my mind, you would see, well, the rest of white America, a la 1968 would be, that's just too much. I mean, NASCAR, you know, banned the Confederate flag. The NFL actually apologized for, for uh, punishing players for, for kneeling. That's one I have to say, if you'd put that on the bingo card for 2020, <laughs> I didn't have pandemic and, and murder hornets. I certainly wouldn't have had that. That's true. I actually listened to a black activist talk about this. This was like, you know, I wish I didn't have to say this, but it's because white people are getting involved that this yes. is getting so much more attention. And part of the reason white people have gotten involved is because they can't ignore it now. Previously, yeah. they had to believe a black man or a black woman say, cop says I resisted arrest, but I didn't. The cop said, I ran, I didn't. We had to believe them and we didn't <laughs> because of all the systemic racist things we've talked about before. As a group, we didn't believe them, but now, they have cameras, they have video to say, look, this is happening. And it didn't take the first time. It didn't take the second time. It didn't take the 10th time. And now that we've had several in a row, like in a couple of weeks, it's like, okay. <laughs> and yeah. in the midst yeah. of protesting, when cops know the whole issue is about brutality, the whole issue is about racial profiling. In the midst of protests, what do they do? They take out the baton and they beat people. They know there's cameras, Dang. they know there's news. And day after day, there's another incident of police beating someone, even if, even if it doesn't end in a you know, shooting death or a choking death, it ends in violence that is unprovoked. Yeah. People have to wake up and go, yeah, they were right. And that has allowed white people to really get behind the, the movement and not be able to say it's not really happening. Now they're accountable. They've seen it. What are you going to yeah. do? Yeah. I mean, you can't, I mean, I, I honestly have not been able to watch the, the full video of George Floyd dying. 
this is one of the arguments, by the way, I've had with some people on, on Facebook. There have been people saying, well, we really just need to be talking about reforming the police. And one of the things I've said, and it's not original to me because uh, I'm, I'm listening to people of color and they're like, you know what? We've been talking about reforming the police since the 1930s, at least, if not before that. And by the way, we were promised that if people were wearing body cams, that that would cut down this because people would be accountable. They pointed this out. We've had all so many shootings that, yes, have been captured by a cell phone, which is why we know about it and why it's actually gotten attention. But in many cases, they they had their body cams on. You yeah. know, I mean, it's something that they could control the the access. So that didn't stop them at all. I mean, and you, you know, know why? Because it's not just the police officers. It's everyone in the in the local government. It's the chief yeah. of police. It's the city council. It's the mayor. It's the right. state legislature. I mean, if it hadn't been for the video, the police report on Ahmad Arbery was right. he's running. The police report for. Um, George Floyd was he resisted arrest. None of that happened. Yeah. And so they are lying because who's there to challenge it? And even if they had a body cam, they could they could they could just suppress that and not not release it until. Yeah. But there's somebody I think from from the Nazi propaganda machine. You don't have to actually censor the the, the news. You just have to delay it. it makes sense. That it, um, that you could you could actually see that working that you could have the body cams you could have some other kind of or a, a dash cam from a cop car you know showing this but you can hold on to it for a while because you say we're on undergoing internal review and where you know the families of the victims are calling for this to be released and but that's this is an internal review we have a process we have a union we're accountable to all this stuff by the time it's actually released the 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 ruling has already been made the 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 cover-up has already happened the whitewashing has already happened and it's and it's done and at that point yes you still have a family that's angered and everything else but it's been delayed to the point whereas you know just in atlanta the other night that poor guy in a wendy's drive-through who fell asleep um you know and then got shot by a cop and it's on you know and we're like it's yeah. right there it's immediate we can't look away right i think that's what has helped so many white people in general be like, yeah, it's true. It's like my kids, they start arguing. I have no idea how the argument started. I listen to one, I listen to the other. They both say something different. So then what are you going to do? And, and this is where we have deferred to the police because why wouldn't we? They're here to serve and protect. They, they are essentially trained to handle situations. That's what we've told ourselves. And that's what our society has bred within us. But you ask any black person, they haven't believed that since the 30s, since the right. 1860s. Yeah. Like, right. they know yeah. that this is not the case, which is why they've told their children a whole different set of rules for when you get right. pulled over by right. the cop because right. they know that yeah. those cops are not there for them and they know they're not going to be believed because it's going to be their word against a whole system that is built against their word being worthy. It allows us to look at future situations with a lot more care and concern. And it should make police officers recognize that we can't get away with this, but it has been ingrained in departments. So tough to fight that too, because just think about any local election. You say you want to reform the police or you want to take away some funding to put it toward other services. And the immediate soundbite is, you don't want to help cops. You want to get cops killed. You're a cop killer. <laughs> it's like, and suddenly yeah. you have no message. Have you seen the the documentary on Netflix, Thirteenth? Uh, I haven't seen it yet, but I know it's about fantastic. It. 
my only quibble is I actually would have called it 15th because I think the 15th Amendment is actually the one that they're really addressing, which, you know, uh, out, uh, outlawed discrimination on the basis of race and allowed people to work around it. One of the things they point out in this that I felt like a like it was like a punch to the gut because this was the world I grew up in. And this is how subtle and how pervasive this can be that the switch after 1964 went from the N word um, to criminal. Even those of us who would very much like to believe that we're better on this than we, when we have been, I'm thinking of myself, I'm not, I'm not pointing fingers. I'm really thinking about my own approach to this. When you're describing the situation that in the past, when we had to, to choose between two competing voices, one of them was the cops and one of them was, uh, uh, a young black male. Uh, I, I had been ingrained since I was a young man to think of them as criminals. That's how subtle that is. I had internalized it and the cops were good people and they're trying to serve and protect, as you said, and, and I bought into it. And That situation in Atlanta brought out this conversation too. Because black people do not trust the cops and they know they'll get shot and they won't be believed and that you know their story will not be the one that is, that is uh, right. listened to, instinct is to run. Whereas yeah. a white person's instinct is to like, I didn't do anything wrong. Let me explain right. this to you. But a black person knows I am likely to lose my life. A video from Wendy's proves that exact mentality. And at first the cops are, are nice. They're interacting. He's out of the car. I mean, he's talking with them. Tries to take the taser gun. I mean, so there's like the I've scuffle. Read. Yes. So he, he does some things that would make you know, would make anyone think, well, you know, it wasn't totally innocent. It's just that there's no way you shoot somebody for that. There's no way. In a situation like in that very, that same thing, a drunk white guy probably doesn't think to run away because he's not worried about injustice. I think white people think they could probably get out of it. And this guy recognizes this isn't going to happen. And so he turns to run and the cop switches switches his taser into his left hand and pulls out his gun while the guy's running. Like, you've got his license plate. He's not going to get very far. He's drunk for crying out loud. And right. if you can't run right. and chase him down, what the hell are you doing as a cop? <laughs> right. And he's clearly not a threat to them. I mean, yeah. he's not, he's not a, a threat to them physically or, or to, their, to their life. The whole thinking is we have got to reinvent this because they are breeding this this racism that is not protecting anybody. <laughs> no, I mean they're militarized to the hilt. They're uh, you know they're sent, they see themselves as a controlling or occupying force. And reform the police, honestly, is an old argument that has not worked. Yeah, there was a great article in Five Thirty Eight this week called "Is Police Reform." fundamentally flawed. And part of the argument was that, first of all, reform is so vague. And what does that mean? And it, it depends on a lot of things and everybody has a different idea of what you're reforming. So while it always sounds good in polling, it's really hard to pin down what you're actually going to do to reform. And the second point was that we don't actually have great data to use when coming up with these ways to reform. For example, 
a lot of violent crimes aren't reported. So when you start trying to identify hot spots that we think this is where a lot of crime happens, so we need to look at those areas and take the data from there and figure out how to reform, it's not necessarily a true picture of the crime actually happening. And particularly when you think about this systemic racism that we know exists, you can imagine that certain areas are targeted. And so it's definitely a much more complex issue than just the phrase reform the police or defund the police. Um, I did see a great editorial in the Washington Post arguing, let's not call it defund the police, let's call it demilitarize because one of the biggest problems is the the weaponry and the force they're using and the violence that's occurring. So if we demilitarize the police, maybe that's a better starting point. Yeah. It's, it's not yeah. as sexy. It's hard to say demilitarize. <laughs> I have to tell you, my mom has been so proud that we haven't had a lot of cuss words in the last two. I know. Actually, when I dropped the F-bomb earlier today, I almost right after it said, this is for Bonnie. Yeah, <laughs> I got to get a couple in there for her.